Hello and welcome to the Translation Company Talk, a weekly podcast show focusing on translation services and the language industry. The Translation Company Talk covers topics of interest for professionals engaged in the business of translation, localization, transcription, interpreting, and language technology. The Translation Company Talk is sponsored by YYZ Translations. Your host is Sultan Ghaznawi with today's episode. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Translation Company Talk podcast show. I'm Sultan Ghaznawi, your host, and today we will speak about the small language company perspective. A very special topic, as most language services companies are within small to medium-sized range, and this conversation directly applies to the issues and challenges they are facing. My guest today is Carmen Hirsch. She is the owner of Transforma Translation Services, a boutique translation company based in Miami with clients in the United States and abroad. She founded this company 11 years ago with the intention of offering a high-touch personalized service based on relationships and with the goal of running a business that allows for quality of life. Welcome to the Translation Company Talk, Carmen. Thank you so much, Sultan. I'm so happy that you're here with us today. Let me start with the questions. I'll, I'll just dive into the first question. Um, I'll, I'll ask you about your early days. How did you get involved in the translation industry? Well, I kind of came in through through the back door. I would say I was working in the television industry. Really? Um, yeah, yeah. And I worked for one of the, at the time, one of the two um, the broadcasting networks in the United States that broadcast in Spanish. Okay. And I did uh, publicity and, and marketing for them. Uh, and of course, being a bilingual uh, environment, um, you know, everything we did was in English and Spanish. You had executives that had to um, approve all the communication that didn't speak Spanish. And then you had the audience that only spoke Spanish. So everything was done in English and Spanish. Um, I, at, once I left that job, I started freelancing and I freelanced. Uh, I was a freelance translator, English and Spanish for the next seven years. And I did very well, uh, thanks to the people I had met through uh, the network, you know, the advertisers, a lot of the contacts that I made. Um, back then, the cable TV industry was starting to launch in Latin America. A lot of the American networks, you know, you had the Hallmarks and the um, Nickelodeons and all these that were launching Spanish versions and Portuguese also in Latin America. Uh, so they started giving me work. So I did um, a fair amount of uh, tra- uh, translation on a freelance basis. And one of the clients that I got was Discovery Networks, which at the time had Discovery Channel and Old Planet and a couple of others that I can't right. remember. So they hired me um, to do uh, freelance translation and also some uh, PR consulting since I had been, you know, doing PR for uh, Univision. And um, eventually, of course, I started getting the, you know, you should really, you know, come in-house. We want you to come in-house and join the team. And we went back and forth for about a year. And I finally said, okay, fine, I'll join the team. So I went in-house and about two or three years into that, I said, you know, I really miss working for myself. (laughs) (laughs) And I really do like just the translation part. I didn't enjoy being an executive. I didn't enjoy the, you know, constant travel and the the stress. You know, television is a very aggressive industry. And I I like just, you know, sitting in an office, you know, handling translation work. So I I quit that job. And um, I took a bit of a sabbatical. I was a little brain dead uh, after that. And, and then I decided I wanted to get back into translation, but I didn't want to be a freelance translator. I wanted to own a business. You know, in 2009, you know, I launched a company and I was able to get clients pretty quickly. One of the first clients that I got was the um, HBO group for Latin America. And then I started getting other clients and I never looked back after that. Oh, very interesting. And how has it changed since uh, you joined? I guess you, you, you've been here since 2009, so that's... 11 years. Uh, What stands out as the most significant change in the language services world? I would say from the perspective of a boutique agency, which is what I am, I would say the access to technology. I mean, I think technology has been around for for quite a while, you know, the uh, machine translation engines and the workflow platforms. But I think uh, what's really made a difference in the last uh, few years is the fact that these tools are so accessible to small companies, you know, they're now cloud-based and they're, you know, very reasonable. So for, you know, a couple of hundred dollars a month, you know, you can license a really good system that includes, you know, translation memory and terminology uh, bases and, um, you know, machine translation connectors and all these great things that allow small companies to to really, you know, work um, at a capacity that they hadn't been able to before. I think it's probably the biggest 
thing that's happened. It's interesting you talk about technology, uh, Carmen. And and also you mentioned something about uh, being a boutique uh, organization. So let's focus on that for a moment. Our topic of conversation today is in the context of small size LSCs. Please share your uh, general perspective on this. What does it mean to be a boutique or a small size language company? Well, you know, a boutique uh, organization or a, big, a boutique um, language services company would be one that does under a million dollars in revenue. Sometimes, you know, maybe like half a million dollars in right. revenue, maybe a little below. And I have always believed that there is work for everybody under the sun. <laughs> of course. There's, uh, you've got, you know, in the language industry, you've got the huge players that are, you've got your SDLs, your TransPerfects, your Lion Bridges, all these companies that do in the, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. And, you know, right before that, you'll have the companies that might do like 50 million to 100 million. And below that, you'll have the ones that, you know, you have these different tiers. Until you get to, uh, you know, like the small ones, which might do, you know, 5 million, you know, let's say between 1 million and 10 million in, in revenue. And then you get to the the ones that fly under the radar, so to speak. And there's a lot of business there. Um, and I would suggest to you, and I, I think I've seen some research on it, that the vast majority of the translation companies out there fall in that category. Right. Uh, you know, people that, um, you know, are, you know, like, independent donors like myself that might have, you know, like one employee, two or three employees and, and, you know, do a small amount, uh, but, but work very well and, and are very established and have clients that have been with them for a long time. And so they, you know, there's room for that as well for as for the big companies out there. And, and, and that's, that's actually what I've been thinking as well. I think there is an opportunity for everyone to, to exist and, and flourish in this industry. Uh, but let's get back to um, the dynamics of working with uh, small-sized companies. Let's talk about something that's very much relevant to today's workforce dynamics, yet we have been doing it for a long time and used to it. I'm talking about virtual teams, and, and managing them has been part and parcel of the LSE operating system for ages. Tell me about your own particular setup. How, how are things set up at your organization? Well, um, of course, we are a 100% virtual organization. You know, I have um, I have one enterprise client that I've had almost from the beginning. This is a company that I acquired um, as a client back in um, 2009, 2010. And they're uh, based in Europe. And so I for that, I have um, assembled over the years because this account started very small and it's growing. So over the years, I've uh, built a team and we've got about nine people that handle that account. You know, they're all virtual. They're all in fact, they're in separate countries. Um, so I have a, a part-time project manager that helps with that. I have a senior content editor that helps, um, you know, coordinate all the the writers, proofreaders, um, quality control people. And then I've got a we've got a team that is a very well-oiled machine, and that the uh, you know the assignments get made, you know, the content gets you know uh, reviewed. Uh, everything works really well. Um, I'll have a call, say, with the um, with my project manager a couple times a week. Once a month, we have a call with the, uh, the my content manager, my project manager, to make sure that everything is working well and that the client is getting all the, um, you know, all the work done. And and so that's that's one part of my business. And then the other part of my business is basically me functioning as a project manager for the um, the legal and financial aspect because most outside of that client that I mentioned, all the work that I do pretty much is legal and financial in nature. So we have um, clients that are law firms. Um, CPA firms and mortgage lenders. That's, you know, basically, you know, I have a few uh, multinational companies that I've acquired. In fact, in the last couple of weeks, I'm very happy that I've acquired three new clients. But most of the work falls in those three categories. And it's mostly for, um, for example, for the law firms and the the mortgage lenders. It will be any anywhere from like from sole proprietors to small and medium-sized firms. And so these are based on the relationships that I have built over the years. I do a fair amount of networking. I get out there quite a bit. And um, so I build these relationships and I have people that call me just on the strength of, you know, of knowing me and, you know, having, you know, given me work and or having heard from other people that we do really good work. And so I manage all that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a lot. It's a lot, but it's uh, it's really rewarding. I mean, I, I don't think I would have it any other way. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. And how about efficiency, Carmen? How do you make sure Everyone and everything is in sync during implementation of a project across virtual teams. Um, well, I, I explained a little bit how the um, you know the work um, functions with my enterprise client. Right. 
the other way, basically, as a project manager, I'm the one that's, you know, that's on top of that. You know, I'm the one that contacts the, um, you know, the, the translators. I'm the one that makes sure, you know, I do the recruiting. I make sure that they're, you know, qualified for the work. You know, I assign the, the projects. You know, I, I, I receive the projects. You know, so I basically, I function in the way that a normal project manager would, you know, so I spend a lot of time doing that. The thing that I am proud of as I built my business is that I, I look for really qualified people. And once I find them, I tend to marry them. So the people that work with me are people both on the enterprise client and the, you know, the rest of the clients, you know, my translators, my linguists, my, my uh, voiceover artists, you know, all the people that I work with are people that I, I've been working with for a long time. You know, they tend to like working uh, with me. I'm very fair, very good to them. You know, I pay them on time. They do great work for me. So we tend to be like a little family in that sense. You know, I, when needed, of course, I go out and I find new people um, and I treat them the same way. And, you know, I find that by giving people respect and by honoring their work, um, you know, they're, they're good to you. And that's how you build a really solid team when you don't have a lot of resources. You know, I don't, uh, I'm not the kind of business that will put out an email to, you know, 500 translators and say, hey, who's available for this? You know, no, I, I go to my people and my people usually either, sometimes they rearrange their schedules for me, which is great. Um, and that's how I built a, you know, a business that has worked. Very interesting. And now shifting gears a little here, uh, given the lean and agile nature of your organization, how well defined are the boundaries between different business functions? Well, let me tell you, I, um, you know, let's see, I'm the COO, the CEO, I'm the vice president of marketing, I'm the human resources manager, I'm the, uh, I do I just about everything. The only, there are three things that I don't do for my company. I don't do translation. I don't do the bookkeeping and I don't do my taxes. I do everything else, <laughs> but it's, it's really not. And I am, you know, the beauty of a boutique uh, business is that it is so fluid. And so it's like a lump of clay. You can basically sculpt it to, to what you want and what you need. You know, I am the owner of my destiny. Um, I, you know, say no to the projects that are not good for me and for my business. Um, you know, I, I have a lot of control. I don't have layers of management. I don't have investors. I don't have stock owners. I don't have, you know, so I, I pretty much control everything, which can be good and bad. I mean, if you want to grow, I understand that you need to let go of some things and I, and I will eventually, but I'm, I'm happy with the fact that I nurtured the business. I have, you know, handpicked everybody. My clients are people that, that have relationships with me that I've known that I've gone out and gotten in and, and, and we built relationships with. So, you know, there's good and bad. But um, it really comes down to what you want to do and how you want to build your business and what kind of a life you want for yourself. Mm-hmm. And uh, so as the leader, um, you just mentioned that you handle a lot of things. How do you define your corporate strategy and how often do you revise it? Uh, well, my corporate strategy has been based on really like finding the niches, uh, you know, kind of matching my my strengths to the needs of the market. Uh, in Miami, Miami is a very competitive market. Um, there's a lot of uh, language availability here. Miami has become a very international city. It used to be dominated by Spanish, um, you know, because of the influence of the Latin Americans, especially the Cuban community, you know, in the early, like in the 60s and 70s. And then we've had the influx from other Latin American countries. But that's also changing in that we have an influx of people coming from everywhere. I mean, you know, from Brazil, from, you know, Russia, from Germany, from, you know, Poland, everywhere. I mean, this, this is a truly, truly international city. So that's, you know, there's a lot of advantage there uh, because everybody pretty much needs language services. I mean, I could have, for example, there's, uh, you know, criminal defense attorneys that come to me. Um, you know, somebody will give a police statement in Spanish, you know, because they don't speak English and that has to be transcribed and translated. Um, a mortgage lender has a buyer in Germany that's buying a second home here. You know, this is this is just constant. This is just the nature of the business. Everybody wants to come to Miami all of a sudden. So there's a lot of opportunity. But at the same time, there's a lot of competition. The competition is fear, um, particularly with the fact that the, you know, the prevailing notion that if you speak a second language, you can translate. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, the, the bane of our business. And um, so I'm constantly trying to educate and explain to people that, no, you know, you need training you need subject matter expertise you need you know this this is an actual profession this is not oh well you know get me a you know get me a french speaker right you know? <laughs> so um you know so so there's there's good and bad 
But I think if you communicate to people that you have the expertise and you have, for example, you know, with these legal documents, you know, have a lot of lawyers that are, you know, clients, you know, this is not just a matter of translating. This is a matter of knowing, you know, about, you know, real estate law or, you know, about, you know, whatever type of, you know, of law you right. to know. So, so yeah, I mean, there, there's, there's good and bad and there's, there's a lot of um, challenges to, um, you know, to overcome, but, um, but a lot of communication and a lot of, um, you know, education is, is in order. Uh, absolutely. So on that note, let me ask you, how many languages does your company translate into? Well, in theory, we can do any language because I can find the resources, you know, anywhere. Um, but the we get requests in seven languages, which are, um, I mean, from English into these languages and from those languages into English, um, which are um, Spanish, Portuguese, Chinese, Russian, French, Italian and German. Now, those are the ones that I get on a regular basis. I will also get, like last week, we got a request for some tax returns from Dutch into English. We've gotten tax uh, requests from tax returns from Latvian into English. Um, you know, we've, um, I got some, um, there's a, a mortgage servicing um, company that we just got as a client. And they, we do for them routinely, we do work into Korean, Vietnamese, Bengali, you know. <laughs> But wow, okay. this, is not the, this is not the norm. I mean, 80% of the work I do is Spanish English. But um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I'm a multi-language vendor, but 80% of the time I'm a single language vendor. <laughs> so you have a core set of languages, which is uh, which makes sense. And then you have additional complementary languages that people, when they need, you source it for them. Exactly, exactly. Uh, let's uh, talk about something uh, that, that fascinates me. It's my favorite subject these days, and I'm talking about business development. I, I think we don't do it right in our industry, and, and we confuse it with sales, which is a, a part of the business development cycle. Tell me about your business development system and how do you practice it? Um, I agree with you that we don't do it right in this industry. Um, I think we spend way too much time focusing on the basics like, oh, you know, we, you know, we offer the best quality at the best prices or we do, you know, we, we focus a lot on quality, but that's like a cruise ship. Or a cruise line, you know, saying, "Hey, we have the best food." Of right. course, you have the best food. That's a, you know, that's like a minimum requirement for, you know, for you to be able to sell, you know, your your, your the food. cruise ship analogy. I love it. You're in Miami, and you just use yeah, cruise. <laughs> exactly. And it's it's the same thing. I mean, of course, right. you need to give great quality and you know, a great prices and all that. But I think um, a better uh, way is to really, especially when you're a small company, is to to find the niche, to find kind of a hole that you see that is not being filled. And filled correctly and then just really dive into it um i decided you know after scoping out things around me i decided that there was a market in um you know just um tailoring my business to the small and medium-sized law firms and the mortgage lenders and those people that are you know they have one-off projects but there's there's lots of them you know and you can in theory at least you know build your business um on a lot of the small projects, you know, the way that McDonald's, you know, has a lot of small transactions and Amazon has a lot of, you know, small transactions. I mean, it's not a great analogy, but it's it's kind of in the same vein. You know, if you get enough projects and you get enough volume, you can build a, a nice boutique, um, you know, business. And I, I also think that uh, business development has more to do with um, relationship marketing. That's really what I base my, I guess my marketing strategy and my business development strategy on, you know, uh, as opposed to just like straight sales. I don't do any cold calling. I don't think it does any good. I've tried it in the past and, you know, people hang up on me. People don't have time. People don't care. You know, it's once you, you start penetrating those pockets of business or those pockets of, um, you know, target companies where you think you can add value, then you, you demonstrate that value. You know, you develop relationships. You try to solve people's problems and you do that before you try to make a sale. And then once uh, people get to know you and trust you, then you come with your value proposition. And then when they have projects, then they they trust you enough to um, you know to hire you. So that's that's kind of the the tactic that I take. You know, just kind of focus on a on a niche that doesn't seem to be getting serviced correctly, and then just going at it with um, you know getting to know people and and showing value before you try to get business. And you touched upon something very interesting. You said that uh, you need to build trust first. And a lot of people actually make this mistake in our industry where they don't care about that. They just want to send you a message on LinkedIn or on email, and they just want you to buy from them. They list their prices there. And and I don't blame them because in, in certain countries that might work. 
But in places like Miami or, or base in the U.S. in general, it, it does not work. Uh, and, and that's a misunderstanding in our industry. People need to get that right because no one will read those emails, right? Exactly, exactly. I see on LinkedIn a lot of complaints from people saying, you know, don't, you know, don't, don't you know, invite me to connect with you and then, you know, barrage me with, you know, your price list and your list of services and wanting to have a call with me. And what that tells me is, look, I don't know you. I don't know who you are. I don't know your reputation. I don't know what value you offer. Why are you trying to sell to me? So I think, you know, people kind of get it backwards. You know, it's more about, you know, let's connect and let's connect in an indirect way. You know, I try to show up at the events where my clients, you know, tend to show up. Uh, You know, a lot of the trade association meetings, a lot of the, uh, you know, structured networking groups. And then, you know, build friendships. You know, I, I have a lot in with my, a lot of my clients, the line between friendship and client is, is blurred. These are people that I go out to dinner with, that I go out to drinks with, you know, uh, a lot of them are women, you know. So we have a personal relationship and then we also have a business relationship. You know, that's one way. But, you know, aside from that, it's a matter of, um, you know, just getting to know people on a personal level. You know, people have to trust you and like you before they do business with you. And I think it's time well spent to try to develop relationships with the people and with the market, you know, segment that you uh, that you want to do business with. Uh, absolutely. And and uh, um, on that note, I think uh, our industry is built on relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's not like any other industry where you pick up the phone and you just tell someone, hey, do you want to buy 5,000 words of translation for me? It mm-hmm. just simply does not work. You have to have a relationship in place. So when that person actually needs your service or skill, they'll pick up the phone and they'll call you. Yeah, absolutely. And that's um, really the name of the game when you're talking about uh, boutique businesses, because I, I understand that there are, you know, at the, at the higher level, there are language companies that might, you know, work on, on things like government contracts and, you know, bidding situations um, where you, you know, you win a bid and then you start getting work. Um, and that might work at that level. But really at the level of um, a boutique business, it's really based on, on that personal touch. So, you know, there's a time and a place for everything. But if you really want to go with a, a successful boutique business, you have to really focus on the relationship part. Absolutely. And the beauty of operating a smaller uh, language services company is that everything is manageable and you can personally have an input in, in business function decisions. Some may argue that it's micromanagement, but uh, that's not relevant. In your case, you're basically managing or you're wearing multiple hats throughout the day as you as you look after different business functions. Yeah. How involved and engaged are you personally with the different activities in your company? Um, well, I agree with you. Micromanagement is sort of a misnomer. You know, micromanagement uh, is a term that I think applies when you have uh, when you're working in a larger in the context of a large setting and you just kind of like you know get your hand into the the different things. But just by definition, when you have a boutique business and you wear a lot of hats and you're managing a lot of them, so you know you have to just really have a clear mindset and you really have to like being involved in a lot of different things you know you might be you, you might call me a control freak but some of my people <laughs> but it just means that I'm, I'm very involved i mean there's a lot at stake here because i it's my company it's my name on the business card it's my you know it's not you know you don't call me and you know you're dealing with a you know customer service agent or you know a project manager that works for a huge company you know i'm the one that answers the phone i'm the one that's built the relationships you know, I'm, I'm the one that that's, you know, stands behind the work that our company does. So I, I wouldn't call that micromanagement. I would just call that, you know, sound management for a small business. So as, as the owner who is involved in all these uh, different business functions, mm-hmm. how do you compartmentalize everything? Because, for example, if you do sales and you're talking business development or sales with a client for half an hour and that's sitting in your mind, but now you have to do vendor management after a few minutes. How do you switch that part off and move on to the next department? You know, it's it's not that difficult. It's not that difficult with a, a small with a small company. You know, it's really not. <laughs> it's um because it's you know at the end of the day, I'm not managing you know 500 vendors. You know, I have a team of. I mean, I have a, a database that's got a lot of names in it. But at the end of the day, uh, on any given day, I've got maybe you know 20 to 25 people that that are working on something for me. That's manageable. And and a lot of those are, you know, on, on the enterprise client side, you know, so probably about 10 of them. So then that leaves about maybe 10 to 15 
that I manage myself. And that's a manager. That's probably what a project manager at a big company might handle. Spend some time, you know, um, talking to some of my vendors, you know, say about different projects. And then I know that, I'm, you know, half an hour, I have a call, a Skype call with a potential client because they've asked me for a proposal. And, you know, just it's a way to, to add variety to my day more than anything. So I, I don't mind it. So larger companies, as you mentioned, um, and understandably so, they have developed complex processes and systems for all areas of business. How structured are your systems and processes? How do you define them? Well, I have a pretty structured um, um, intake system and, and, and project workflow system. Of course, it's very it's, it's, it's not based on technology. I'm, I'm getting to that point where it's, it's getting to be a lot for me to handle just you know manually. So I'm I'm looking to to um, to add some technology to the workflow process. Mm-hmm. But I have a very defined, you know, process, an intake process, you know, where, you know, a client will call or send, you know, a file or or something um, or ask, have a request. And then, I'll, you know, there's like a, a, a coding system and a code that becomes a project. And, you know, all those things that we that we all do as part of the, um, the project lifecycle, um, you know, and that that's a very structured, um, you know, I, I for example, I name all my emails, you know, with the project number so I can track them later. I mean, this is all very manual, but I've got a very defined, I don't ever lose a project or get confused or, you know, <laughs> because it's a project that's very defined. It's very manual. And like I said, I'm right now, I'm in the process of looking at how I can um, automate that or how do I can I can bring some technology just because it's getting a little unmanageable. But right. so the process itself is, uh, you know, it's it, it's there and it's it's pretty formal. And, um, you know, there's no confusion, you know, with my vendors as to, you know, who's working on what or when something comes in, I know exactly, you know, what that project, you know, is and who it was assigned to and, and when it's due, um, you know, but it's, again, it's a very, it's a manual process. And that's kind of one of the disadvantages of being small, but as you grow, then you need to learn, which is what I'm doing, you need to learn to incorporate some efficiencies so that you don't go crazy. <laughs> and one of the problems actually in our industry is that uh people do not document things mm-hmm. most of the the, the processes and, and companies that i've seen are people just do things a certain way it's not documented if, if one of the employees is replaced one day then the training is not easy because nothing is documented they have to just job shadow someone and, and learn that mm-hmm. so how important in your organization is the documentation and making sure that everyone follows that for example you have documents about doing things for your project managers, even for your vendors, an onboarding process and, and explaining to them what it means to become part of this organization and so forth. Do you do all of that? Yeah, I have a process. It's, it's not super complicated, but I, I have a process that I explain. I have a, like a template email when you know somebody starts working for me on a, especially on a, a client that's a, that gives me ongoing requests, and I use I tend to use the same people, you know, especially when the client gets to know their work. I have a template email that I sent to them explaining, you know, how the process works. Here's how, what you're going to receive from me. Here's my expectation. Here's how you need to bill. Here's the, you know, the invoicing process. Here's how you, you know. So there's there's a, a bit of a process. It's not super complex, but it's something that is it exists in a template that I send to to everyone. Um, as far as the that that's really the only process I need for my my one-off um, uh, vendor management, I guess if you want to call it that, or the onboarding. My enterprise clients, it's a little more complex. Is that there's that has a lot of moving parts. So we over the years I've developed um, documents, training documents. Um, you know, for this is particular client is a publishing company in Europe, um, and they um, they publish um, abstracts of business books online. So we have a process for okay, how to write one, how to translate one. You know, how to produce an audio for them. Here are the style guidelines. You know, here's the training. Here's how you you know, here's how you need to work with us. Here's how the you know, their system works because they have their own um, IT department that they've developed a TMS, their own TMS and their own tools. So so we show them all that. So we have a when, when we get a new writer or a new translator on board, we have a process that we train them on. So, yeah, I mean, it's not super formal, but there's something there. If not, you're just going to go nuts. You can't, you know, reinvent the wheel with every person that, you know, starts working with you. You have to have something. Uh, I understand. Um <laughs> Our world of language service companies revolves around uh, clients and, and their needs. How has your organization adapted to address their changing habits and needs? I guess I'm trying to get a picture of where a client would find agility and better value in a smaller LSC compared to dealing with a super agency or a larger organization. Sure. It, it really depends on their needs. Um, obviously, if you have a, if there's a huge company, you know, let's say if General Motors you know, needed, you know, translation work, I wouldn't be able to uh, to service them. I'm too small. 
But if you have a company that has, let's say, you know, in the 10 to $20 million revenue, which is still a small company, you know, and they have ongoing translation needs, you know, we can handle something like that. You know, we, uh, the, like I said before, the, the small to medium sized, you know, law firms, even the solo practitioners, the, the small mortgage lenders, you know, there's a, that's a niche that we can handle pretty easily. You know, our prices are going to be better, obviously, than, than a large agency. I have, I don't have a lot of um, overhead, so I can pass those savings along to, to a client. You know, I can also show a client how to save money. And that's, that's one thing that I want to say that makes me different from, from many people. I get a lot of calls from people that say, you know, I sent this huge document out to, you know, a couple companies and they gave me this quote and I hope you can beat their quote. And I'll take a look at the document. And sometimes if it's a legal document, I'll go over it with one of my legal translators. And they'll say, you know, for this company from Mexico is trying to get, they don't need this 50 page contract translated. They need this and this and this. So then I'll offer, I said, look, you know, we can do a summary translation for you and you're going to save more than half the price. They like that. You know, um, we have a very streamlined, you know, operation, obviously, you know, we, right. it's just me and my, my small team. Um, we have good relationships with our, our translators, they're, you know, they're people that I know. And like I said, I marry them once I really like them and, and we're flexible. We can expand our services and, you know, uh, take on a bigger project or we can take on a smaller project. You know, if, if, if a large project comes along, if a large enough project comes along, I can add team members, you know, to the, to that particular team. So, so there's a lot of um, a flexibility and a lot of advantages. So with large companies, I think one of the key advantages that they always tell their clients is that they have a larger team and that team can become an extension of the client's organization. Uh, how how does that work at in your organization? So you, I know you have a team that uh, looks after several clients at the same time, but does the client feel like your team member is a part of their their staff, uh, but that they can talk to openly and, and send a, a message knowing that the work will get done? Yeah, there's a lot of direct um, connection between my client. Like in other words, I don't stand like as a screen or as, you know, like hiding, you know, the people that work with me. There's, you know, this is all based on on trust. You know, once I I bring on a client and we agree to work together, then I, I become very open and transparent and I connect them with my translators, you know, without the fear that they're going to go and, you know, take me out of the equation and go directly to them or anything like that. Um, you know, because it's it's better. It's more efficient for the client. You know, they don't need to be talking to me and give me direction and then me turn around and talk to the, you know, translator or the project manager. and get, you know, I just connect everybody, you know, and, and the client appreciates that. And, you know, I'm also, you know, it, it's also up to me to to make sure that the people are, you know, uh, top notch. So if somebody starts to, you know, to, to not be as good as they were at some point, then it's up to me to tell the client, listen, I'm going to bring on another resource. Let me, you know, let me train somebody else and you bring in somebody else. So there's that openness, you know, there's not that, you know, those silos where I, I'm afraid that the client is going to, like, you know, take a look and see, you know, who I'm working with. I don't, I don't believe in that. And, and how often do you, um, do you meet with your clients and, and do a needs assessment uh, to see how things are going with the relationship and so on? Um, well, you know, there's there's not not a lot of that with my enterprise uh, clients. The the team that's been working on that literally has been working. You know, we have like new team members that come and some others that go, but the, the core team members uh, have been with that client with me for probably like ten years or so. So there's no, I haven't gotten any any necessarily any complaints. Um, about their work, but I know that on my end, if I if I see things that should not be happening, if I see that the quality starts going down, or people you know tend to get lazy or take you know become complacent because they they know that they're getting a lot of volume from me, then I at that point I'll tell the client, look, I'm you know this person just FYI, they're not going to be with me anymore. I'm bringing somebody else. But it's not an FYI. I have um I have a lot of leeway to handle and to manage that you know as I see fit. Mm-hmm. And when clients, for example, have complaints or it's inevitable, everyone gets that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have some feedback to share. Do you have a mechanism to handle that? How how, how does that come in and, and who's in charge? How does that happen? Uh, well, I'm in charge. <laughs> it's me. It's me. Um, no, I, there's yeah, there are times when, you know, I'll get the feedback that, you know, something wasn't um, you know, up to par. Sometimes it's um, a lack of um, understanding on the part of the client as to what constitutes a good translation. And, you know, I, I try to explain that to them and I try to, um, luckily my, my clients are, um, I guess, fairly 
easy because they because of the relationship I have with them. I did have this issue a couple of weeks ago where a client wasn't happy with the translation that we did. And so what I said, okay, on the next project, I, I'll be sure to assign it to somebody else. And they said, fine, no problem. You know, there was none of this, you know, well, you know, I want my mummy back or I, you know, I'm going to you know, find somebody else. Because um, again, we have those relationships. So if they don't like something, then I try to do what I can. You know, uh, sometimes I offer to do the, the job again, you know, at no extra cost. My uh, main concern is to make sure that they're happy and that I'm delivering the value that they expect. And I, I want to keep them. You know, I'm, I'm in this for the long haul. I want them to be with me forever. So I, I will do what I what I need to do. But they're usually very understanding and very nice about it. You know, I don't have um, I don't have a lot of issues there. You said something very important right now, Carmen. Uh, you said uh, value. What what does value mean? What type of value does an organization of your size creates for a client who wants to buy something? Because there's a lot of confusion about the word value in our industry. Everyone says, you know, my company provides translation. But if you think about it, we don't simply provide translation. That's what the translators do. We we provide value. So what type of value you're creating for your client? Well, in my view, uh, value has to do with solving the client's problem. You know, everybody that comes to you, to any organization, is because they have a problem that they want to solve. And they, you know, want your product or service to, to solve that problem. So as a translation company of any size, you know, a boutique one in my case, it's it's my job to make sure that, they, that I'm helping the client solve their problem. You know, their problem is that, okay, I'm, I have a blog post that I have to post on my website, you know, to um, all my clients in Latin America, and it needs to be good. Okay, so I'm here to solve your problem. You know, I can translate for you and I can do a good translation. So looking at it in terms of solving a client's problem is probably, I think, the best way to to go rather than saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm here to sell you something or I'm here to meet my quota or, you know, whatever artificial uh, thing you're trying to accomplish. You know, at the end of the day, you have to look at things from the client's point of view. And once you do that, a lot of the defensiveness goes away because, you know, I, in the past, I've tended to get defensive with clients that say, well, this was a terrible translation. And I'll, you know, my thought will be, well, no, that was the best translator in the world and you just don't know. But then, you know, you really have to think back and say, okay, obviously they're trying to solve a problem. How can I help them solve that problem? Okay, well, I can offer somebody else. I can offer to do the translation again for, for free or for a discount. Um, I can try to understand what they believe to be a good translation, because especially with marketing materials, that's a very subjective area. So the fact that somebody says, this is bad, well, let me understand, what, what do you mean? Show me. So it's just really working with them. And they appreciate when you take the time to to just really you know help them accomplish what they're trying to accomplish. That's so true, actually. Um, from what you just said, uh, you have to understand your client's problem. And most of the time, your client is trying to, they're in the business of making money. They want to sell to someone else. So, um, and sometimes they're not happy with your translation because their end client will not like that translation. It's not that the client doesn't like it. So how much time do you spend studying the client's customer to see what they would be looking for uh, in terms of the the value of the translation that you're delivering to them? Um, well, I'm speaking from the side of the um the, the lawyers, um, they basically, those needs are very clear cut because the translation just needs to be very accurate. So, you know, the, 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 the legal language needs to be correct. You know, the, you know, it, it can't just be a translation by somebody who speaks the language, you know, it has to be something right. that, that can either, you know, stand up in court or that can be understood by the client or that can like really spell out in detail when it comes to, you know, um, like a settlement or or something, you know, something that's going to be presented in court and filed, you know, as part of the case. It just, you know, it just has to be, it has to be correct. I don't know how, how better. <laughs> how uh, no, no, I, I think the point is like in terms of lawyers, their end clients are the courts. So you understand the courts, you, you know what they need. But right. you also mentioned something about uh, clients asking for marketing yeah. uh, translation, right? Their clients, uh, the client's client could be in Chile or in, in Argentina. Right. And in order for the translation company to deliver the best value, they need to know who those people are reading the translation. That's when actually, in my opinion, your client will become happy because you have taken the time to understand and, and, and figure out what type of language to present to them. So do you run into those type of issues where a client sometimes complains that my customer is not happy with this? No, that's it's actually because I don't, I don't do a lot of localization. My clients tend to want um, materials 
for the entire region. So if you wanted to go, for example, into a specific market like Colombia or Argentina or Venezuela or Mexico, where the the nuances of the culture would make a difference, uh, then that would be, yeah, that, that would be something that would where, you know, you have to be like really aware and really work with your client closely and uh, make sure that they're happy and that the, the client's client is happy. But most of the work I do for the people that come to me is people that want to communicate to the entire region in what we call generic or, or, or general um, international Spanish. So that hasn't been an issue um, so far. So I'm, you know, counting my blessings. <laughs> Well, okay, great. Let's let's talk about technology for a little bit. Do you yeah. think our um, technology providers in our industry are they fair to smaller language services companies? Uh, do they have the right pricing models and products that would make it easy for us to conduct business? I would say so. I would say that, um, like I mentioned before, now you know with the the tools that have come out um, recently in the last few years that allow a small transition company to just like you know have a like a cloud based um, tool that has translation memory and workflow and all that. And, uh, you know, those tools can be obtained or licensed at a really good price. You know, there are other things that are probably, you know, outside the scope of translation agency might need, like, you know, like a customized uh, MT engine or something like that, that would be prohibitive um, or a, you know, proprietary uh, tool that would cost, you know, tens of thousands of dollars to develop. But Mm-hmm. I think that's really outside the scope and outside, you know, that's really not something that would be needed by a small, a really small business. Um, right now, I mean, the opportunity is incredible for anybody that wants to to have a really small business in a really defined niche to, you know, to manage their business and to use tools because they're so accessible and they're so affordable, you know. And, and in your organization, what type of tools do you normally use? Um, well, you know, we're not super um, technological, but I do um, I do license a, um, a CAT tool, and you know that, and I have a, a translation memory built in there for some of my clients, and I also have a, um, a machine translation connected by API. I have a couple of um, different engines, and that comes really handy, especially with the a lot of the Spanish English work that we get. Um, you know, a lot of the legal stuff, a lot of the um, the very generic. Usually, the clients will send us documents that are not that don't identify any. They don't have any personally identifiable information, so we can you know load them to our you know the memory that we've built. You know, I don't have specific um, TMs built for for clients because that's I mean I don't have enough you know volume to justify that or enough clients to justify something like that. So I have a generic one, but the Vast majority, I would say 99.999% of the legal stuff I get is has non-identifiable information. So, <laughs> so it works out well. And uh, um, what about project management? Do you employ some sort of technology for that? or That's what I'm trying to struggle with now. I need to move to that next level um, because I, I basically am very manual in my, my work. I know that the tools that I license have those capabilities and I, I'm in the process of learning them and I'm in the process of exploring, you know, what, uh, what else is out there so that I can, I can get out of a lot of the project management work that I do, because I, I really do as a business owner, I need to be spending my time in uh, business development. So the less time I spend doing something manual, the more time I have to, you know, catch up with a client, you know, to go to an event, you know, things like that. So um, that's kind of the downside of being a boutique, you know, you, you can't really, narrow yourself into and, and be so honed into the you know the smallness of it that, that you don't grow because I mean unless you're happy with not having any growth I do want some growth I don't want to be huge I have no desire <laughs> I right. want to be boutique but still I mean you need to to aspire to grow and you need to bring in more revenue and and, and, and do better and it's not easy to do that when you are uh, 100% manual operation you know you have to implement some tools yeah absolutely well, you talked about uh, doing multiple things within your organization, and let's uh, talk about your role as the leader there. How do you handle the the work and life balance? Uh, it's inevitable that your work ends up with you past your business hours. I mean, it does with all of us. We carry our phones with us. Those right. emails never stop. So, how do you handle or create this balance? Um, well, in in my world, the line that separates work from personal is is very blurry and and I don't have any real problem with that um, because again I have a lot of control I mean I like the fact that 
I can, you know, throw in a lot of laundry right before my conference call and then put it in the dryer after the conference call. You know, for many years, I actually had an office. I, I wanted to have that psychological separation between my home and my business. And I, I went to an office. I, you know, I paid the rent and I went over there. I did my, my work and I had people around me that I could chat with, you know, during breaks or and then I would come home. And then eventually I said, you know, this money that I'm spending on rent, I could be spending on, on marketing or on something that, that can bring business to me. So I, I moved my office, you know, back home. And so there's, but I, I find that there's really no, there's really no problem. I mean, I have enough right now. I have my, my door shut and I'm working. And when I'm done, I will leave my, my, my bedroom that I have set up on, as an office and I will shut the door and I will not come back in until tomorrow morning <laughs> or in this case on Monday. Yeah. And I have no problem with that. Um, if I have to leave at two in the afternoon to go to a doctor's appointment, you know, I'm not going to miss an email from a client. I'll see it. And I'll be able to respond, listen, I can't talk to you right now, but I'll be happy to catch up with you tomorrow. So it's really, I guess if you are a bigger company or a high level executive, that could be like a real trap where you just can't escape your work. But in my world, my both of them are so, you know, together that and I can easily manage both of them. I will tell you, though, I have a hobby. I am a cyclist. So really, <laughs> yeah. That is incorporated into my life very much. Even, you know, for example, on Tuesday and Thursdays, people know that they can't get a hold of me before 1030 in the morning because I go on my morning bike ride and then I come home and I get ready. So even some of my clients that have been with me for a long time, they know that I'm not available. <laughs> wow. How many kilometers do you cover on, on that day? Kilometers. That's interesting. It's uh, well, uh, or miles in your case. Yeah, miles. Yeah. Don't make, don't make me do math, please. Uh, <laughs> I will do on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I will do about 30 miles. And then on weekends, I'll do another like 120. So in total, I do about 150 miles of cycling every week. And it keeps me sane. And it's the, it keeps me young. <laughs> wow. And it gives me energy. So yeah, it's super important. Yeah. You need, everybody needs to have a hobby. <laughs> well, I, I, I feel a little bit envious there. But then again, uh, I have to compete with you on, on weather because I'm based in Toronto, which has half the year right. it's frozen. You're in Miami. <laughs> I have an unfair advantage. I know. It's an unfair advantage for sure. But good for you. So this part of answers my next question as well. What is your system and means for coping with the stress? I know the cycling is one of them. I also do, I, I should do things like massages, you know, fun things that I, I don't really have time to do, but I, I make sure that I spend uh, time with my friends and family. Um, you know, tonight, sometime uh, later, I'm going to go meet some friends uh, for some socially distant uh, drinks. And, um, you know, I, I make sure that I, I spend time and I touch base with, uh, with what's important in my life, you know, my friends, my family, um, you know, my nieces and nephews and my hobby of course so there's uh, quite a bit and again this is really the the value to having a small company what you give up in say you know making a huge amount of money you more than gain in in control and in quality of life and that's really really important to me so i i couldn't agree with you more uh it's really important to find ways to to handle stress and and uh the pressures of life. Uh, unfortunately, whether your company is large or small, you're going to deal with stress somehow. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's necessary. <laughs> so uh, let's shift gears a little bit. We are both members of the Association of Language Companies or ALC. Um, I've, I've known you there for many, many years now. Uh, how do you find being part of a group of entrepreneurs that are in similar business landscape? How how, how do you see this affecting your business, uh, you, the growth of your, uh, you know, at a personal level and at a business level? Oh, my God. I We don't have enough time for me to talk about how wonderful ALC is. I mean, there's just, I joined ALC. Let's see, I started my business in 2009 and I joined, I want to say, in 2010 or 2011. And it's been probably one of the, the most important business decisions that I've made because, I mean, the level of the camaraderie and the friendship and the, the way that people are there, people that you would think, I mean, they're, we're all in competing businesses, you know, we all compete on a business level, but I've never met a group of people that are more willing to help you when you need help. I can't count the number of times that I've either, you know, like posted on a, on a chat or a listserv saying, hey, I have such and such a question. I really need some help. Can somebody help me? And I'll get, you know, 10 emails or 10 responses saying, hey, call me whenever you want. I'll be happy to talk to you. 
and oh my god, and the the, the counsel that I've gotten, the the times that I've needed. Oh my god, I needed a mom uh, interpreter one time. I do very little interpreting, but when I get these requests, <laughs> and I went, I knew who to call, and I said, please help me. And she said, I got you. Don't worry, <laughs> and saved me with a client. Um, you know, I I'm gonna mention a couple of names. You know, Richard Brooks. I mean, that man. Whenever he talks. I want to be there to listen because he is he is so knowledgeable and I've learned so much from him. Kathleen Diamond, you know, I've learned so much from her. She's helped me so much with all my questions about my business. It would take two hours for me to list the names of everybody. <laughs> it's it's indeed very, very valuable. Um, everyone there, they, they're they open for conversations. They're open to give value to, to you know, whenever you have an issue, as you said, um, I've been involved in other associations as well. But it's I find it a lot, a lot more structured and a lot more rigid when it comes to um, letting people actually try to help each other. Um, and, and in this case, you don't see that. You feel like it's a big family, I guess. Exactly, exactly. And I, you know, during these times of COVID, I, I miss the actual physical conferences because that you mostly talk to, you know, on, on email or on a chat and, and you get to actually see them and have a drink with them and, and joke with them. And it just like feels like you like these friends and then they are friends, you know, that you have from across the country or you know even across the world. So, yeah, yeah. absolutely. I mean, during this COVID um, pandemic, uh, people were checking on each other and uh, within this association. Uh, and I received so many emails if you if, asking me if I'm doing okay, which which is rare. Like people normally, this is a business association where these conversations should be centered around business. But uh, I'm I'm very pleased that I'm part of this organization, and I'm sure you're feeling the same way. Oh my God, this is the best decision I ever made, and I'm not exaggerating when I say that. I you know I've made so many good friends, and you know I met you. I've met so many other people. My God, it's like I. <laughs> I, I don't have enough time to tell you how great it is. <laughs> uh, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Speaking of COVID, did this uh, pandemic change anything for you personally or professionally this year? Um, how did you adapt to this changing dynamic and reality? Well, you know, I feel a little guilty because I know a lot of people have um, have been affected negatively. But uh, in my case, I actually got more work because the my enterprise uh, client, the e-learning company, actually decided to develop a bunch of um content for their clients, not directly related to COVID, but indirectly. Things like, you know, how to manage a remote team, how to work in a crisis, you know, what your employees need to know to go through, you know, to manage uncertain times, all this, you know, so my my workload actually increased back in, in March and April. And um, they actually, this company also started to, to produce even more audio. We produce audio um, abstracts for them. And so they decided to produce more because they realized more people being, you know, um, you know, in, in quarantine and kind of going crazy with, you know, kids around the house or spouses or whatever, <laughs> more, you know, to their, you know, to their content instead of reading it. So, right, right. and on the legal side on the mortgage side, those, I didn't see any difference. I mean, apparently people are still suing each other and, you know, people are still being taken to court. So we, <laughs> that, that work didn't, wasn't affected. So I feel a little guilty, but no, I, if anything, I, I did a little better. At the beginning, it's now normalized, but at the, like I would say March through May, I, I actually got more business than I did before. Oh, well, I'm I'm happy for you. I'm, I'm glad that things <laughs> are working out. Uh, what what advice would you give to other language uh, company executives and owners um, from your experience? You know, I would say figure out what you want to do, and then throw yourself at it a thousand percent, which is really you know trite advice but it's really really the way to go and particularly if you want to build a a small company don't be ashamed of the fact that you want to build a small company there's nothing you know that the word of the the last few years has been scale everybody wants to scale and everybody you know people talk in, in in the billions and you know that's fine for the people that want to do that but don't be embarrassed or ashamed about the fact that you want to be small and you want to remain small you know it's all about what you're trying to accomplish, you know, how you see your life, you know, what quality of life you want. What your goals are. Exactly. And what your what your goals are. You know, there's there's a you know, you, you can be deliriously happy, you know, as a small, you know, as a micro business, as a boutique business, and, and make the money that you need to make to uh you know to to have a good life. You know, I one thing that I'm always reminded of and I, I saw a show many years ago on HBO um, about the like the other side of um, of making money, you know, in the 
as an actor, you know, there's you know the, the actors that make the you know millions of dollars, the Schwarzeneggers and the Tom Cruises and all these other people. Right. But there's you can make a very nice living as a as a career movie extra. You can buy a, a, a nice house in the suburbs and you know put your kids in private school. And you know, there's not only one side of the coin. You know, you have to really just figure out what you want to do and and, and find a place. You know that makes you happy and and just be happy in it. And, and as you said, we we are extremely lucky because we live and operate within this open economy, um, and and you're allowed to do whatever you want. You can find any opportunity, and and if you want to make it big, obviously you will have to um, you know sacrifice quite a few things, as you said. Uh, but if if you want to have a comfortable lifestyle, you can still uh, comfortably operate a business and and stay within your limits. So I, I really like that uh, that idea of yours. Absolutely, and this is what works for me. And after many years of fun, this is I you know found my place. This is what I love to do and what I hope to do for many years to come in this same way as a as a boutique business. That's so nice to hear from you, Carmen. As we are uh, reaching towards the end of this interview, um, uh, it was a very candid and and really nice interview. I really really enjoyed every every. every question I asked and the, the answers you came up with. L- let me ask you to talk a little bit about your company here and about yourself, how people can learn about your company, about the services you offer, and about yourself. And if they need to talk to you about any of the subjects we covered today, how should they reach out to you? Sure, sure. Uh, so my company, as I mentioned, uh, we work primarily uh, in the uh, legal and financial space. Uh, we're based in Miami, but we have clients all over the country and outside. And if anybody would love to um, talk to me more about anything we've talked about today or, you know, needs translation work or just wants to say hi, uh, they can contact me at uh, the best, easiest way would be to reach out to info at transformaonline.com or to just pick up the phone and call me 305-722-3827. And I will reach right back and we'll have a conversation and we'll have a great time. That's great. I appreciate your time today, Carmen. Thank you for sharing your experiences and the valuable information and in, in this podcast and that I'm sure the listeners here will find very useful and interesting. Uh, don't be a stranger and make sure to come to speak with me on future episodes. Absolutely. Thank you, Sultan, for this great opportunity. I had a lot of fun. We're going to review another set of products today that apply to language service companies. Today, we will discuss the tools that small language companies may find helpful. First on our list is Slack. I know we have covered this tool in the past, but it's worth discussing it in the context of small teams. It allows you to create a workspace and let your team members connect with each other in private or public chat rooms. You can also allow external people like translators and contractors to join designated channels in chat rooms. You can also neatly organize every conversation as a thread and tuck it away for referencing later on. I give Slack 10 out of 10. Next is Skype. We have been using Skype for decades now. It has become one of Microsoft's most widely used tools. Despite the fact that it has now been split between a basic version and a business version, I find that Skype does an amazing job allowing communication between teams internally and with external people. It also provides a nice interface which allows for text-based conversations, voice calls, and, and also video calls. A lesser used feature of Skype is its phone function that allows you to rent a phone number and make calls across the globe for a fee. Skype gets 10 out of 10 from me as well. Third on today's list is Microsoft Teams. This is the first time we have two Microsoft products that compete with each other on one episode. Teams is a direct competition of Skype, but most importantly a direct attack on Slack's success. It is available both as a free basic product and as part of the Office 365 family of software. It enables text, voice, and video-based communication between people both internally and externally. The user base is much smaller than Slack or Skype, but the tool has really good features. I give it 8 out of 10, and that's just because not too many people use it. Alright, we have reached the end of this podcast episode. To be honest with you, I really enjoyed speaking with Carmen and the information she shared with us. I think what she shared is what most of us experience, and we can relate to everything she says. For me, the life-work balance part was very interesting, and I was pleasantly surprised at how Carmen has found a way to maintain this balance, despite the fact that we cannot really disconnect ourselves from work. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us five stars wherever you are listening from. Make sure to subscribe to the Translation Company Talk podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite platform. Your comments and feedback are very important. Please keep them coming. Until next time. Thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe and stay tuned for our next episode.